The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're having a fantastic week. Today's guest is Ahmad Atwan. Ahmad is the founder and CEO of VC Fuel here in Houston, where they invest and partner with exceptional companies that provide products, services, and infrastructure that accelerate the transition to a decarbonized world. Ahmad is a seasoned investor and executive who has consistently created outsized returns for his investors and companies over the past two decades. He was most recently a managing director at North Haven Infrastructure Partners, which is a private equity investment platform with over $12 billion in assets under management across three funds. Ahmad's extensive experience includes the sourcing and execution of transactions across energy, including oil and gas upstream, midstream, and related infrastructure, transition fuels, and renewable energy. Ahmad received his bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard University with the highest distinction and was amongst 32 Americans selected as a Rhodes Scholar. He also earned a master's degree in international relations from Oxford University. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ahmad Atwan. Ahmad, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thanks, Jose. How are you doing? Oh, man, I am great. I'm great. It is a wonderful, hot summer day here in Houston, (laughs) Texas. It's great to be back in person, to be doing a podcast back in person. So it's nice to have you here in front of me and not behind a screen, even though, you know, it is one of those times in our life where people don't get to spend a whole lot of time together. I'm glad we at least get to spend a little bit of time together. If you wouldn't mind, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. I think it was really interesting when we first met and you gave me so much detail about what you've done in your career and things like that. Would you mind just kind of recapping that a little bit for the listeners? No, my pleasure. So I guess I'll start at the very beginning, as we've talked about before. I was born in Kuwait, the product of two people who met my mom and dad in Germany as exchange students. My dad didn't speak English and my mom didn't speak Arabic, so they met in broken German. (laughs) And uh, they ended up moving to the U.S. And my dad got his grad degree here, learned English. And then they moved to Kuwait. They got jobs in the oil industry. And that's where I was born. So in terms of my background, having spent my entire career in energy, you know, I traced part of it back to the fact that I grew up in a country that was 99% dependent on on oil for its economy. And it's still 98% or so dependent on oil. And so I grew up around every aspect of the industry. After spending my early years in Kuwait, I went to high school in Ohio, mm-hmm. where my mom's from, and then went to college at Harvard and grad school at Oxford, where I was a Rhodes Scholar. And over there, you know, one of the things I really got into was oil economics and, and, and kind of oil and gas geopolitics. So mm-hmm. I spent some time in Saudi Arabia. And for the first time, I went to Houston, Texas to interview people here who had been involved in U.S.-Saudi relations and U.S.-Saudi trade. And I got really into the 
you know, the dynamics of oil, the dynamics of OPEC, of oil price, of how to get affects things here. And I really had passion around the industry. And so after that, I joined a management consulting firm called Boston Consulting Group. And that was really my last generalist job mm-hmm. or my first and only generalist job. After that, I started a energy technology company. And to do that, I moved down to Houston. I had been just that once during grad school when I'd come here to interview people. So I moved here really without knowing many people, but it was a very welcoming city and a great place to build talent around what we were doing, which was an energy technology, trading, transaction management, risk management software company. And we built that company and sold it in 2003 to a big software data analytics company called SunGuard Data Systems, which is a multi-billion dollar company. Because I love the operational side of things and I love starting things, then started a Brazilian ethanol company. So I actually moved to Brazil, to Sao Paulo. And what that company did was we built a mill that turned sugarcane into ethanol and sugar. So those were the two byproducts were ethanol and sugar. And in Brazil, it's pretty interesting because cars can run 100% on ethanol, unlike anywhere else among big countries. And so that was a pretty mission critical asset. We ended up selling it. You know, by contrast, you know, corn-based ethanol here is used to put into cars. Right. But part of our thesis is that Brazilian ethanol is, is seven times as efficient, emit, emits a lot more CO2. So it's kind of a, you know, almost a renewable product. After that, I spent about a decade in private equity right. and infrastructure investing. So investing in companies, primarily in oil and gas, some in the upstream side, some in the midstream side, you know, pipelines, processing plants, and some in the renewable side. And during the course of that, I really started thinking, you know, where is this industry going? Where is the big opportunity? You know, given all the science around climate and where people were trying to solve that issue wrong, long term, yeah. are there investable areas to go? And that's where I ended up starting VC Fuel. And I moved to Houston, actually, to start it down here. Okay. That's interesting. So you saw basically the writing on the wall, right? You saw where things were headed. What were some of the indicators that really sort of told you, like, I need to move in this direction? Because I think sometimes we see things and we don't act on them. What was it that really was like, turn the page for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so, so I see both sides of the equation. So living in New York mm-hmm. and, you know, having investors, especially in Europe, they're very worried about climate change and they're right. kind of being driven by ideological reasons. But I used to spend about half my time traveling yeah. to Houston for a lot of our investments where, you know, the views are different here. It's really pro oil and gas environment. So I see both sides of the equation. What really started shifting my views were our investors. So in, for example, in in a fund that we raised in 2011, Uh our investors embraced the shale revolution, oil and gas, and they wanted to put as much money into it as possible. These are investors in private equity funds, right? Right. So they're big pension funds, international sovereign wealth funds, you know, guys like Texas teachers, CalPERS. And then in when we raised our next fund, you started seeing about 25-ish percent of investors say, I no longer want to do oil and gas. And it wasn't because of the returns, primarily. It was primarily because they were getting these climate mandates. Gotcha. And by 2017, 18, it became a vast majority of investors right. who didn't want to invest in oil and gas anymore. And that ends up, you know, having a big impact on how you, you, you can make money because if so many investors don't want to invest in it, that means your market for exit when you buy an energy company is going to be smaller right. because there's less pool of capital to buy it. 
Gotcha. Whereas before you had, you know, dozens and dozens of companies looking to buy private oil and gas companies. Now it's just a handful. And to say that, I don't mean to imply this is a very critical point. I don't think the industry is going away. I don't think oil and gas is going away. I think it's a very vibrant industry. But I think from a private investment perspective, it's very challenging. Uh, And really the big corporates are going to be the ones to continue to invest. And so then I thought, so where is the opportunity here? I want to, you know, I want to stay in energy and the investors, again, were, were very, very receptive to ideas around clean energy, clean techs, and you know, some of the things we'll talk about today. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, I mean, obviously you see all these things sort of happening at the institutional level, right? And so you see where the money's going, but you also see some, some of the initiatives that are being driven by the dollars, right? And so I think that's a really interesting perspective to have. It's a unique perspective to have. You know, it's something that I think is is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. And I think it's only going to get bigger. So that's really interesting. So one of the things that you mentioned when we first met and I asked you what you were the most excited about, you mentioned carbon capture technology. Can you speak to that technology and some of the nuances that are involved there? Yeah. So I'm really passionate about carbon capture technology. We've actually already invested in a couple of companies that address this area. Mm-hmm. And there's two things you can either do with when to capture the carbon. You can either store it or actually use it. Using it is the best because then you're inputting it into something else and it's kind of disappearing. Right. Storing it is good as well, but you have to monitor and make sure that it doesn't leak back out. Right. So that's, gotcha. that's an issue that's a part of the industry faces. But so what carbon capture is basically is you take an emission source, which is almost any form of energy production and also other industries like ethanol, steel, cement, manufacturing, and any source that has CO2 in it, you isolate the CO2 out of what they call a flue gas stream. Mm-hmm. You then take the CO2 and you most likely put it into a pipeline. And then once it goes through the pipeline, you either store it underground and so you pipe it to areas where geologically it's effective for storage, or you actually use it in different industries and so, you know, some industries that can use it. You can use carbon in the cement making process. So you can have green cement. Wow. So that's carbon capture in general. So when people, the acronym people now use is CCUS, carbon okay. capture usage or storage. Okay. The reason I think it's such a game changer of an industry is that it's the only industry that addresses all aspects of CO2 and global emissions. Gotcha. Right? Wind, wind and solar don't, you know, electric vehicles don't, because those don't solve the problem of the traditional oil and gas industry and all the other emitters. Whereas carbon capture, you, if you can capture all the stuff that comes out of refineries, that comes out right. of all these processes, you'll then have, can get to your net zero goals. So I think that's why you know, our energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, a lot of people have emphasized this. That's interesting. You know, that is definitely a, a big differentiator, right? The ability to utilize the carbon or uh, the CO2 emissions and then put that somewhere else and then reuse it somewhere else. I know that there's companies out there, like, for instance, there's a company that uses the flare-off gas at rig sites to mine Bitcoin, right? Yeah. That's yeah. really interesting, right? Yeah. And that's a form of, I guess, carbon capture as well, right? Because they're using the waste, yeah. what was being once just disregarded, and reusing that energy to mine Bitcoin and, and create another line of business or revenue stream for oil and gas companies, 
right? So I think that's really interesting. Tell me a little bit about the companies that you've invested in and and what made them so attractive. Sure. So we define our investment universe when we formed the company really focused on what subsectors should we invest in because it's a very broad universe. So let me start with what we won't invest in. So we won't invest in in hydrocarbons, so oil, gas, you know, coal, other areas Traditional, like that. Traditional, yeah. exactly. Right. And we won't invest in kind of the most crowded areas of renewables. So those are generally wind and solar, but also hydro, some areas that really have, they've been invested in for 20 years and you have too many competitors in them. And the reason we don't is the returns are too low and they're too competitive. You know, so sometimes on a yeah. levered basis, you make 7 8% a year, which is not what we're looking for. Right. So we invest in everything in the middle, which we call energy transition verticals and technologies. And some of the major ones in those are the one you, you already mentioned, carbon capture, usage and storage. Hydrogen is a big one. Energy efficiency, so using less on the demand side, including things like green buildings, anything that really causes consumers and industrial users to actually consume less energy, because that really helps the problem as well. A big one that we like is actually clean agriculture. So okay. a lot of people don't realize that you know, everyone seems to blame passenger vehicles for CO2 emissions. You know, gl- globally, agriculture causes more emissions than than passenger vehicles. Wow. And if you ask the average person that, 99% would, would say They just think it's yeah. the cars, right? They think it's the cars. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then there's a category called clean manufacturing. So whether it's manufacturing of chemicals or cement or other areas, those are huge emitters. The last one I would mention is renewable natural gas. So it's taking natural gas from things like landfills and from biodigesters, which are areas that are capturing greenhouse gases from biodigestion and dairy farms. And the difference in that one is, in the last one that I mentioned, renewable natural gas, is you're capturing methane. You're not capturing CO2. That's another important point. Like Clean energy isn't just about capturing CO2. That's what everyone talks about. Right. But, you know, methane is is something like 100 times as potent as CO2. Oh. So if you don't if you don't capture methane, you only capture CO2, you're not solving the problem. So it's interesting when when you actually look at the stats around all this stuff. That is interesting. Yeah. So when you guys are looking at companies, what type of, you know, things are you looking for when you're looking at companies that you're thinking about investing in? Great question. The number one thing, the non-starter and the number one most important thing we look at are the entrepreneurs themselves, the CEO, the management team, the founders. Are they you know, smart, sharp people? Are they pioneering in terms of their vision? Really important. Are they resilient? Have, you, have they been through you know, hardship before that they ha- they've had to overcome? And really, do they need this, right? Is this something where we, we love companies where things don't work out? It's not a great scenario for the management team, they need this to succeed, right? Because then you get the hunger. Right. So I'd say that's the number one thing. If you don't have that, then a lot of the other stuff doesn't doesn't matter. The second thing is really a path to revenue and, and profitability. A lot of these clean energy areas might be really interesting and fascinating, but they lose money and they don't have a path to making money for a number of years. So we need to see within the next two to three years, can you generate positive revenue and, and four to five years po- positive cash flow? And the third thing is a lot of these areas, unlike when you're looking at pipelines or some traditional areas of oil and gas, involve new technologies. So Mm -hmm. you're vetting the technologies, 
you're 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 basically handicapping what the chances of, of success are. Right. And we've done that through a number of ways, through you know hiring experts, all the way through to working with the government and the national labs will actually help you vet technologies, which we, did, we were surprised by. I didn't know before getting into this that the Department of Energy, actually, you can pay them to help you vet. No kidding. Your, your technology. Yeah, exactly. So well, I know the Department of Energy has been running like contests, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so do you guys participate in watching these contestants or is that something that is also, I mean, because I know that they put cash opportunities up for grabs. Yeah. They even have something like if a company has like this diversity mix and they, if I remember they called it like Jedi or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. And so if the company has, not only are they, you know, creating new technology for clean tech, but are they also diverse? Do they have a diverse team? And that's something that they can also be awarded for, right? Yeah. So is that something like when you pay into that, is that like a program that helps them run those like different types of contests and, and things of that nature? Yeah. So just like with a lot of things in the government, they're two separate things. So they, <laughs> there's the, what you're mentioning, contests, grants, yeah. under Biden, the grant money for clean energy, you know, has gone from basically zero to tens of billions of dollars. So wow. all our companies are applying for grants there. And in, in fact, there's a startup company that all they do is write grants for people and take a cut of the grants. Wow. So such, it's become such a big area. It's an so, industry now. Yeah, it's an industry, exactly. But, but then there's the, you know, you're almost recycling. You're then taking that grant money and then saying, hey, can you please help me um, <laughs> evaluate a technology? Because the government has some of the best energy scientists in the world. And really, this is clean energy is a problem of chemistry and physics. And if so, so when, when you have people who've had decades of experience in that, right. it's invaluable to help them vet your stuff. And then on, on your, on your final point on the, you know, when we talk about ESG, you know, environment being the E, social being the S, it's really important to us in our companies to have the diversity that we think, you know, clean tech companies and any companies that are really future looking need to have. So we have a pretty strong representation in our portfolio of that as well. I'm curious, why go down the road of creating a VC in comparison to a PE? What really dictated your your thought there? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we looked at the climate tech industry and the, and the companies that were being developed in the industry, PE generally is larger check sizes and mm-hmm. is for companies that are more developed and already generating a lot of cash flow yeah. and you know where you can apply financial engineering, leverage, things like that. VC is more kind of post-idea stage, but but really ramp-up stage, still yeah. trying to scale technologies. And we found that the vast majority of opportunities are in the VC stage. Higher risk, higher reward. So we know yeah. in a lot of these, we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought our portfolio of 10 or so companies, there are going to be a few that just don't make it. Yeah. Right. But then there'll be a few that hopefully make it really big. And that's how VC works. Whereas in, in PE, they're just isn't as much opportunity. And the one thing we really like about how the industry is emerging is there's a ton of money coming in to PE and infrastructure that the investors are saying you have to invest in clean energy, but there aren't that many clean energy companies big enough yet. So there's a great buyer universe for our smaller companies as they get bigger. Theoretically, a company could start with a VC and then move to a, a private equity group later on in its life as it continues to grow in scale. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it can happen fast. We have one company that within just over a year has gone from us doing the second round of VC funding and now private equity is coming in. Wow. 
Wow. So your thesis is paying off. Yeah. And then one of the major things is they're generating positive cash flow. That's awesome. That's so awesome. When companies are starting to grow, right? What are some of the things that you've seen entrepreneurs, business owners, founders, co-founders, what are some of the challenges that you see them run into it? And how do you help them overcome those challenges? Because as a VC, I'm sure you give some sort of mentorship, right? Yeah. Some sort of advisory, right? Like you're there, you're not there just to write a check. You you also sort of actively participate in the growing of their business. What are some of the things that you help business owners and founders overcome as they continue to grow their business? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So we always say with every single one of our businesses that we invest in, as we're diligencing them, we always say, hey, we want you to kind of diligence us as well and say, what do you want us to do to help you? Right. And if there's nothing that we can do to help you, that there's probably something wrong in the way you're thinking about this relationship, right? So <laughs> the biggest challenge in clean energy is commercialization. So mm-hmm. a lot of people have come up with really good technologies. They work in the lab or they work at a pilot scale. Yeah. But then they don't necessarily have a path to working with a commercial partner. Mm-hmm. And a commercial partner generally is a bigger company whether it's an energy company, you know, that's into the clean energy areas like a, you know, an, an Oxy or a Denberry, mm-hmm. or whether it's a more, you know, consumer packaged goods company, they haven't taken that step to work with the ultimate person who's going to sell the product, gotcha. who's going to market the product and distribute the product. And so we try to connect them directly with people in those companies early on and with people who are influential. And ideally, the, the ultimate stamp of approval is if those companies then actually put a little bit of money just as a, as a show of faith into the company as it grows so they have a stake in it as well. And we've had multiple companies where we've come in, introduced them to really big corporates who then actually said, okay, we want to invest as well and help, help you grow. That's interesting. Yeah. What is that relationship like? I mean, whenever you have somebody, are they a client? Are they an investor? Like, how does that relationship work on the commercialization side? So do they take a piece of equity from the business or, you know, how does that, how does that usually work out? Yeah, we don't like, when we don't encourage our companies to just trade equity for commercial support. If it's a big company, they're usually well capitalized, it would be, the company's actually adding value to them because most of these companies are trying to get cleaner and go into uh, and see, reduce their, their okay. emission footprint. But sometimes the monetary aspect becomes the big company itself says, hey, you know, we'd like to support this company so that we can accelerate the distribution to our to our clients, or maybe there's a portion of the company's intellectual property that they want to have an exclusive on. And so they'll actually want to invest in the company alongside us, so in the equity of the company. So okay. let's say they put, you know, X million dollars in and they get some percentage back of the company. Gotcha, gotcha. So as these entrepreneurs and, you know, these developers go out and they start creating ideas and they start creating their pitch decks and things of that nature, what are some of the key elements that you are looking for as an investor that, hey, if you don't have this in your pitch deck, and I know you talked a little bit about, you know, your path to, you know, how are you going to basically make money? How are you going to become cash flow positive? But I think that there's probably certain like elements of a pitch deck that you probably nitpick a little bit that any VC would nitpick a little bit. What are some of the things that you typically like, if you don't do this, I probably am not going to be very attracted That's funny, to It's funny you ask a local university has asked me to do a pitch deck seminar. So <laughs> it's, I would have had a more thorough answer for you later. But, but the, a lot of pitch decks are kind of all over the place. and They're not that logically organ, organized. 
and that sometimes is because the entrepreneur is a very technical person who hasn't yeah. done one before. It's their first time. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's a bad company. Right. But I mean, the first thing you should always start with is how big is the market, right? Because if the market's not that big for what you're doing, then it doesn't really matter yeah. you know, how great your technology is. So the total addressable market should be at least you know a couple billion dollars for what you're doing because you're not going to dominate that market. There are going to be a lot of people... Right. So how do you define you know, the TAM, the total addressable total market, market, market yeah. and the size of the market? And then you know, the next one is kind of like almost the origin story. So how did this thing start Right. and how did it develop to where you are today? Like take me through the timeline of how you got here. A lot of times that's difficult to understand. There's just a product. Yeah. And then you know, one thing that's sometimes lacking too is what need are you solving? Mm-hmm. Like why do people really need you know, this. Your product or service. Yeah, exactly, your service. And then the one, again, that a lot of times is missing is what's your commercialization plan? So it's great if you can get this to pilot scale again or to the number of users, a couple hundred users, but how are you going to get it to many users? You know, in VC, you always hope there's a point in the company's growth which becomes hyperbolic. Right, like a hockey stick. Yeah, like a hockey stick. So where do you, how are you going to get onto that hockey stick? Yeah. Right. Or as they sometimes they call it the S curve as well for adoption. Right. So I know like sometimes people create like executive summaries for their pitch decks. And that's something that they can leave with the investors who are considering their company. Is that something that you've seen anybody do really well? Or is that something that you think that people should do better or spend more time on? Because I think it's great to have a pitch deck. But at the end of the day, most people forget a lot of what they see or read on a slide. So having something tangible to give to your audience, is that something that you've seen people do or is that something that you would recommend? Great question. I 100% recommend it. We ourselves are guilty of that a lot of times. So we have investors in VC Fuel and we just send them our pitch deck that's, you know, <laughs> 20 pages. And the chance that, you know, when you really think about it, the chance that they read through it, especially if they're a high level investor, is pretty slim. So. Right. Generally, a one to two page teaser, as we call them, would be a great thing for people to do. Most VC-backed companies or companies looking for VC funding do not do it. And I go back to, you know, one thing that we've tried to train our team on is, can you describe this company? And some of them are pretty complicated, like, you know, chemical separation technology and stuff like that. Can you describe why we should invest in this company in a way that that anyone would understand in Mm -hmm. one page? And a lot of times you'd be surprised at how challenging that is. And for me as well to do that. But I go back to where I started thinking about this and I, and I started trying to force the one page summaries is at Amazon, Jeff Bezos is famous for when he walks into a meeting, no matter what you're presenting on, it could be the biggest project in the world, a small project. He only does one page. That's it. <laughs> and, and what he does, which I think is really interesting, is he passes around to everyone or whoever is presenting passes around. And they take like a five minute silent period to just read it and think right. about it. And then they, then they debate it. But it, it really forces you to distill your thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and a, a best practice from Amazon is probably not a bad place to start on stuff like right. this. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> so it's something we've tried to do. And, yeah. and, and if you can't describe something in a page, then you probably don't understand it well enough. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, coming from a background of business development, you have to be super concise, yeah. very clear about what you're asking for. Yeah. And you need to be able to communicate that clearly, effectively, and you need to be able to win and influence people, right? Yeah, exactly. Not to be stereotypical of a salesperson, 
but you need to be able to have some salesmanship, right? Exactly. And you need to be able to get people on board with what your idea is and get them excited about it and make them want to put dollars into your bank account for your company so that you have the fuel, the VC fuel, to, you know, get on that S-curve, as they say, right? Exactly. That's really interesting. I think that, you know, what you put together here is super fascinating, very commendable. I can't wait to see some of the... I know you guys have... You've started the infrastructure? We're starting the infrastructure fundraise as well. So one thing we want to do is, in clean tech, kind of what they call 1.0, which is about, you know, 15 years ago, there was a wave of hot fundraises around clean tech, just like there is now. And the biggest obstacle was scaling. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people came up with good technologies, but then they never connected with the energy companies or with Houston to scale. Yeah. And so the point of the Infra Fund is to be able to scale, you know, technologies to make them useful. I mean, that's one really important point is most clean tech VCs, even now, they're they're mostly in Silicon Valley or in Boston or New York. And they have very little connectivity to the energy industry, Mm -hmm. right? They're doing this stuff in isolation. And I, I really believe unless they cooperate, with companies that can scale, you know, a lot of those companies aren't going to do well. So hopefully we'll see more of that going forward. I think your geography puts you in a great position. Yeah. You know, it's, you're here in the energy capital of the world, right? So, you know, if this is the business you want to be in, I mean, you got to be in Rome, right? Exactly. So, you know, you're here, which is great. I really appreciate, Ahmad, I had a great time speaking with you today. It was so interesting getting to know you and hear a lot about what you've done and your background and also where you're going super commendable for you to, you know, really see the writing on the wall and want to take action and take action and really, you know, be driving the energy transition through dollars and funding and advisory. I think your experience is going to go a long way with anybody that you invest with. How is the best way for people to approach you or companies to approach you with their ideas or technology if they want you to take a look at their business? Yeah, I think the easiest way just in general is to go to our website, which is vcfuel.com, mm-hmm. all one word, so VC and then the word fuel. And you can look through the website, see if, if there are areas that mesh with what you're looking for. And then in the contact section, you can contact us Excellent. via email. So. Awesome, awesome. Again, Ahmad Atwan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I can't wait to catch up with you again in the future and hear about the infrastructure fund and how other businesses have grown and things that have taken off because I'm sure they will. Thank you, Jose. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for August 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on August 26th. Our July happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the last one, we hope to see you there this month. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts, network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Other than OGGN's events, we have three in-person events and one hybrid in-person and online event. First up, we have our three in-person events. The first being OTC, or the Offshore Technology Conference, at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, from August 16th to the 19th. Next, we have the IPAA Leaders in Industry Luncheon at the Petroleum Club of Houston on August 17th. And lastly, we have the 2021 Connected Plant Conference at the Renaissance Hotel in Austin, Texas, from August 30th to September 2nd. Other than our three in-person events, we have our hybrid event, which is NAPE, or the North American Prospect Expo. Now this summit is a hybrid event because it's both online and in-person. 
The in-person portion of the event will be from August 18th to the 20th at the George R. Brown Convention Center, while the online portion of the event is from August 9th to September 3rd. If you have any questions about these events or any podcasts within the Oil & Gas Global Network, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for August. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.